Amen. Good morning. How you guys doing? Great. Great weekend. Can I talk about Tennessee football again this week? Is that allowed? Maybe? Okay, I won't do it. I won't do it. We'll wait. Well, there's a couple of weeks. You might get another dose of it, but we'll see. Anyway, welcome. My name's Tyler. I'm glad to see you. Glad that you're here. If you're a visitor, so glad that you're with us. One of the pastors here. Um, we're in a series, uh, almost, we could see the finish line in Corinthians, Better Together is what, what we call it, and uh, last week we talked about what it means to be a prophetic people, and I know depending on your church tradition and what you've grown up in, that that sometimes is a, a word that causes uh, stress, you know, but the idea is this, simply like if you believe Jesus is going to return one day, that's why we sing Right? If you believe that Jesus is going to return one day, you are a prophetic person because you are believing in something that hasn't happened yet. And, and when I think about just prophecy, uh, simply defined is to speak under divine inspiration with or without reference to future events. So, like if you've ever been driving down the road and you think, oh, I haven't seen that person in a while, I need to text them. I think that's the Holy Spirit divinely inspiring you to reach out to them, right? Or if you've ever said, you know, family member or a friend, you've had a word for them, and you uh, had a word for them, and you say, I just need to share that with them. I don't know why God's put this on my heart for you, but he has. Like, that's prophetic. That's, you're divinely speaking something that God has given you. And, you know, as we turn our attention now to orderly worship, we'll touch prophecy again in a minute. Um, but it's got me thinking about future things. Like all of us have a future in front of us, right? And, you know, and, and no bigger future since college football is such a big topic these days. Is I was thinking about how I got into college, right? So, so those of you that have been to college or you're waiting for that promotion or that job, right? How I got to college didn't matter. It's just the fact that I got there, right? And somehow I got, I got in. Somehow, I don't know. I think they took pity on me as opposed to, you know, some people earn spots in the college. I think mine was pathetic, right? It was, they took pity on me, um, you know, and so that begets the saying, I think we say a lot, well, the ends justifies the means, right? You've, maybe you've thought that, maybe you've said that, maybe you've thought that about something in your life, you know, but the end justifies the means doesn't belong in Christianity, right? And doesn't belong in Christianity, the destination or the goal of Christianity matters. It's what we're singing about. It's our great hope, right? That we hope that, you know, one day Jesus is going to wipe all the tears from our eyes. He's going to set everything right that we can't quite get in squared up. Um, but how we get there also matters. What we're doing right now matters. How we do what we do tomorrow matters. And and I think that's the great push and pull of our culture these days. It's like, well, if you get to wherever you want to go, you're good. Thank goodness you got there. But actually, no, how you get there determines what you get anyway, right? And so another way of saying this, it got me thinking, since the passage this morning is on orderly worship, you know, and you're like, well, gosh, why do we need to talk about that? Well, Paul felt it important to write about it to the Corinthian church. And if you're unfamiliar with the Corinthian church context or need a reminder, it's a young church that is just out of whack in just about every way you can be, right? And I don't know, maybe you've attended the church like that. Maybe you've visited a church like that. Maybe that's us. I don't know, right? That's always kind of fun as we've been keep, keep thinking back or working our way through Corinthians. But God is a God of order and process is another way of saying that. God is a God of order and of process. Let me give you some examples here. One, 
God is the God of order and creation. If you're familiar with the Genesis text, he was very methodical and specific with how he created the earth, right? How he created the earth. And then likewise, if you're familiar with the passages and God knit each of us in the womb, he predestined us a life and a path that we're all walking. The scripture says that pretty clearly, I think. And so God is in order. Like, it just doesn't happen. He purposes it. He causes it, right? And so maybe that, that good thing that you're experiencing right now, right? Like, the good thing I'm experiencing, I'll just go ahead and do it. For Tennessee football, right? You know, like, he also caused 15 years of misery and sadness, right? But here's the funny thing. On the back end of, you know, of a hard season, the joy is that much greater, right? The joy can't be great without the hardship on the, on the front end. God's also a God of order in how he wanted sacrifices. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, right? There's the, hey, you know, there's whole chapters of books in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. And it's like, hey, cut it this way. Don't cut it that way. Do it this way. Don't do it that way. Like he, he's very specific. Also, the tent of meaning, if you're familiar with the Israelites carrying around the tent of meaning of the tabernacle, it was built according to spec and like it couldn't be out of in, in none of that could be out of order like you had to go in a certain time you had to go in a certain way the curtain was this thick it was this long it had this much gold all those things also how he chose people like if you're familiar with the story of David like he he passed over the uh, David's older brothers the prophets so that he could choose David to be the next king God chose David the youngest as opposed to the oldest which is kind of Risky, right? In a, in, a, in a male-dominated society where the oldest gets everything, God says, no, I don't want him. I want this person because this is a person after my own heart. And also his plan of salvation. Like he frustrates us. He did me. He frustrates us to such a point where I think, well, if I just live my life good enough and if I just do enough right things that I can find my way to him and he'll accept me. And God says, no, actually, what I want to accept is you accepting my son. I want to accept you accepting my son. And then it brings us to the, today's topic of worship. And so how we think about this idea of order, just generally, as I just kind of glossed the entire Bible in like two minutes, right? How we think about order when it comes to God and the kingdom is a matter of extreme importance. It really is what you think about this because it's discipleship. What we think and how we think it and why we think it and where it pushes us toward is discipleship. And I'll get there in a moment uh, at the passage. But one, I just want to talk about worship for here for just a moment, Can you, if you'll permit me. Worship, I'll just say this, should be vibrant at crossroads. And when I say vibrant, I mean it should make us a little uncomfortable, the things that we do. Now that is different, has different meanings for all of us. Sometimes being uncomfortable means you're going to stand the entire time. Sometimes that means you might raise your hand. Like I'm not always comfortable raising my hand, but I feel like I should because I think that's what worship is. I'm expressing something of God that pushes me out of who I am and, and, and makes me just be a little risky, right? And so when we gather like together, we should actively participate with God and each other in worship. Worship is not just singing, by the way. It's also diving into the world word. So like I know I'm probably not the, the, the I'm not the I'm the probably the most boring speaker you've ever had. I don't know, but whatever, right? So and I trip over my words sometimes, right? But like when we when we dive into the word, we would just study the word in this portion, like that's worship. Worship isn't just singing. And then when we ask you to reflect at the end, like the point is is we want to 
which I think is a good thing, is that the chapter always brings us to a conclusion in a next step. And then when we sing in a response, we should reflect where we are in relation to what we're talking about. That's what I try to do. You know, another thing that we worship is welcoming each other. Like, no one should ever come in and go out never feeling welcomed, right? Like, that's a huge thing. And also with giving, and then how our time gathered on Sunday should frame our week, right? Like, that's what I think. And so, I just want to put that before you. Like, push yourself. God's worth it. He deserves it. We should push ourselves always before him in how we sing and how we study and how we pray and how we reflect and how we welcome and how we gather and how we give. Likewise, so here you go, worship also is in private, right? And so it should be much of the same participation privately, one-on-one, or in small groups, or maybe with your spouse, or with your friend, or a sibling. And that means diving into the Word, and prayer, and singing songs, and welcoming, and reflecting, and serving. And that should frame our week as well. That should frame our week as well. And so what I want you to walk away with, the big theme this morning is God is a God of order. But what I want you to walk away with with worship is this. Worship is more, I've said it, I'll say it again. Worship is more than singing a set of songs before we get to the morning's passage. Period. It should focus and gather and draw our attention on God, not us. So like what I think is good about when we gather corporately or when I gather privately is that for once I get to put the stuff down that my heart's troubled with and I get to focus my attention and my affection and my love and my devotion to God. And not where things are going wrong in my world. But on the other hand, that's how I make it through those seasons too. Because I know there's a God that's listening and wants the best for me. And he has the best for me. And he's planned the best for me. Even though in the moment it doesn't feel that way. A.W. Tozer wrote this. Anybody a Tozer fan? And you know, like He writes great, great devotionals. He wrote this about worship which is really convicting for me. And it says this, any man or woman, woman that is bored or turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. Goodness gracious. Goodness gracious. Like, so I think how we worship now should influence what we're going to do later and what we're going to do later should influence what we're doing right now. Right? I should worship like I'm ready for heaven right this second. Right this second. But oftentimes I don't do that. I don't know if you're like me or not. So, worship. All right, so I'm going to read the passage or part of the passage over this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you can follow along, starting in verse 26. And so, just, I just again, the big theme is God is a God of order. I want you to just notice how Paul communicates that in the text this morning. What then, brothers, verse 26 says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for the building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or at most three, and in each turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you could call all prophecy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion but of peace. I right, stop there on purpose. God is a God not of confusion but of peace. 
He is a God of peace, not a God of confusion. So if you find there's places of confusion in your life, like that's an easy barometer. When I do that, like the barometer is, is well, wait a second. God is a God of peace, not of confusion. That should tell me who I'm listening to, whether it's myself or something else, but not God. But not God. Verse 26, each one have a hymn, a lesson, a revelation. This is, by the way, where we get our orderly service. We don't do it exactly like the Corinthians do, right? But I love what it says at the end of, 30, of 26. It says, let all things be done for the building up. Now, that's the theme. We've been talking about that for several weeks. Spiritual gifts are for the building up and the encouraging of the body. And the same thing is here. The same thing is here. We're not here to be showy. We're not here, right, to, to, to stand out. We're not here to earn a merit badge of faith. We're here to express devotion, express love, and confession to God. Verse 27 through 31. Paul's giving instructions on how tongues and interpretations and prophecies should work together. Uh, and if, again, just recapping, like the Corinthians were overemphasizing a spiritual gift, the one, and it's at the expense of the others. And that's where we get into trouble. If you say, no, if I could only worship this way, then you've just precluded any other way that God might want to work in your life. You've just precluded any other way that God might want to work in your life. Right, because I don't know what worship's going to look like, but I know it's going to be bigger and better and larger than what we think it is right now. Right, and again, you know, I just that that the idea: let all things be done for the building up of the body. And so these verses are descriptive of their service; they're not prescriptive of our service. Right, they're descriptive of some services, but they're not prescriptive of ours. Verse thirty-two. It's been just a few minutes here. I love it. It just says, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So, as I said a second ago, spiritual gifts are for the building up of the church. And if we are supposed to be a prophetic people, that means we will at times share God's truth, say God's truth prophetically over ourselves and others. And so whatever truth we share, either from the scripture, if you're reading it, which we will, we are right now, or something that God has given us through the Holy Spirit is subject to other people. So what I mean by what is Paul saying? Because he's saying like, remember, there's disorder and confusion. He just said, God is a God of not of confusion, but of peace. So there's disorder. And so he's saying, well, hold on a second. You can't just throw the God. Now, you've ever had this happen? Like, like maybe you're in a hard place and, and you say, and someone goes, we know Jesus is better, you know, or like they, they give the pat answer instead of entering with you in where you are, they just say, well, if you just give it to God, it's going to be okay. Unless it's not, right? I mean, if God's ordered our steps, right? Who's ever had that, by the way, where someone trying to be encouraging actually discourage you, right? I've probably done it too. And that's the thing. We are supposed to be prophetic people, but it's also subject to the other people. That's what Paul is saying. So, it's fine to say, hey, God told me to tell you this, but if it doesn't make sense with what the Word says, and if it doesn't make sense with where you are, it might not be from God. Oh, my gosh, right? Really? No, that's 
It may not be because it has to make sense with what we know and it has to make sense with where we are in our lives. And I think that's why I think prophetic and prophecy has such a hard name because we have this idea. It's the wild, wild west and we're facing off with each other with our guns in the OK Corral and we're just going to say whatever. And whoever says the most holy spiritual thing means we're the most holy and spiritual person. But yet Paul is saying to his church that's struggling in unity, that's struggling with what to do and how to live within the culture, he's saying, no, actually, it has to make sense and work for one another. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that sometimes God doesn't push our buttons by having people tell us things that we don't want to hear. See the difference, right? We're pushed all the time by the Spirit to be more like Jesus. Sometimes people have something that maybe not be for us. It might be for someone else, or maybe they misheard it. And so this, it's that meaning what truths we share or declare has to be receivable, right? So when I say, like when we say, hey, be together, be in community, like you have to do that in such a way that you're helping the person take next steps. What's the use of having all the right decisions if we don't use them the right way? Same thing with family, right? Like I could be the best parent on the planet and know what to do, which I don't, and I'm not. But even if I am, and if I don't do it the right way, then what's the difference, I'm just wasting my breath. And I think a lot of times we're afraid to say something because we're afraid we're wasting our breath instead of, here you go, trusting that God is a God of peace, not of confusion. I wonder if we would feel more connected if we'd be a little more risky in that type of worship. Right? I mean, we're talking about worship. It's interesting, isn't it? We're talking about worship, and then Paul was spending time here in the passage this morning saying, hey, it has to be receivable. Here you go. Another word for confusion, by the way, since God is not a God of confusion, is disorder. And as I've been saying, God is a God of what? Order. He's an order in our lives. And so what does Satan do? What does Satan want to do? He wants to bring disorder. Disorder. He wants us to bring disorder. And so again, Sometimes we go through seasons where things are hard and they don't feel like they're orderly, but do you trust God's got something bigger in it for you? Or you just live in such a disordered life that you can never see which side's up and what side's down. Because God is a God of peace, not of confusion. Okay, we tracking a little, maybe? I know, right? It's kind of hard. Okay, okay, so... Which brings us to the part of the passage that I haven't said. So we're good there. God is a God of order. We've got that from a discipleship standpoint and from a a general theme in the passage. So I've omitted a part of the passage at the first because I'm going to get to it in just a second. And it's hard to read. and, and, And I did this on purpose, right? I did this this week because some of our women's ministry are at a conference this weekend and my wife's not in here. And so I feel relatively safe to share this part of the passage. I think this is why we're all here. If you've read ahead, you know where we're going, right? Also, Tanya had a joke this week, which was really funny, okay? So me and Travis and Tanya were texting, and, and Tanya and, and, and all her fun and sweetness. By the way, who loves Tanya, right? Like, she's great, right? Yeah, she is. And she goes, which one of you idiots has this passage this week? She didn't say idiots. I just lied. I'm just kidding. But she goes, which one of you have this week, and how are you going to do that? And I'm like, well, it's me, and she goes, well, here's what I really want to do. What I want to do is I want to raise my hand to ask a question, and I want whoever's sharing to say, just ask Sean later, which is what the passage says. And it's like, you can't do that. So I took your joke. Sorry about that. Okay, darn it. Okay, here we go. God is a God of order. 
Now let me read the next two and a half verses. As in all my, in all the churches of the saints, that's the last half of verse 33. 34 says this, women should keep silent in churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as to the law also says, if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now you know why I decided to do this when my wife's not in here, right? Because you're like, what do you do with that? What do you do? What do you do with the passage that is really hard and challenging, but you trust and you have faith that God is going to share something or speak something to you? And so I know your ladies in the room are like, okay, he's going to have to figure out how to spin this really quickly with me because he just said for me to speak is shameful and I shouldn't do it. And that's absolutely the furthest case from Paul. Furthest case from what Paul is trying to say. So. I'm going to nerd a little bit, too, to give you an answer. Um, one, higher criticism, if you've never heard of it, is a part of theology that looks at the source material. By the way, this is not the source material. We've got parchments with letters and, and passages from all, you know, from ancient Greece and ancient, in the ancient lands that give us what we have today, right? And so higher criticism is theology that looks at the source material to verify that it makes sense with how it's written and what kind of history it gives for its accuracy. It's a whole branch of it. If you really want to know more about it, I'm happy to give you all the resources I can. But it's called higher criticism. In verses 33, as you can imagine, verses 33 through 35 are hotly contested for a couple of reasons. So you're like, okay. So what does that mean? Well, here you go. Let me give it to you as best I can. Manuscripts, and I noticed I said manuscripts, not one, but plural, found east of Greece. Greece is kind of the center of the early church, right? You've got the Jewish side on the east. You've got the western side on the west, right? Manuscripts found east of Greece has these verses, just like we have them, in their manuscripts. So there's one in particular, manuscript number 81. This, they number them for a reason because there's a bunch of them that's sitting in Alexandria right now. This manuscript you and I could go look at right now if you could read the Greek and it's sitting in Alexandria. Where's Alexandria? Egypt. That's right. Yeah, it's in Egypt, right? Sitting in Egypt right now contains all of Acts and all of Paul's letters. So this manuscript has Acts and all the letters of Paul. And in that manuscript, these verses sit just like how we read them, okay? Okay. However, here's the however. Here's the but. However, manuscripts found west of Greece include those two and a half verses after verse 40, which I haven't read for you this morning, like the manuscript number 88. There you go. So there's manuscript 81. It has it one way. Manuscript 88 has another. I told you I was going to nerd for a minute, okay? So you're going to have to follow. I'm sorry. Hopefully I do a good enough job. And this one's sitting in Naples that was written in the 12th century, right? Remember, higher criticism. So, here's how the Bible that we have is having. I'm going to try to do this in 15 seconds, which I really can't do, but I'm going to do my best, right? Is you had, it was all orally transmitted, and then people started writing it down. And when they had the copy, you would have scribes, right? The Old Testament mentioned scribes. New Testament mentioned scribes, and they would sit and write all the copies. So can you imagine this is your job? All you're doing is copying, 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 copying. No, you can't think about what you had to say. No, you can't say anything because your job is to copy what someone else 
set. Okay, so when manuscript texts have parts of verses in different spaces, Bible scholars call that displacement. Displacement. So when the text is displaced for one reason or another, right? Kind of like the ice storm displaced a lot of people in Texas, right? All the power went out and some people had to go live with their parents, which was a lot of fun, or they sheltered together. Remember that? Like Hurricane Harvey displaced people in Houston? Like that happens here too, and it's called displacement when the text is displaced for one, re- one reason or another. So you're like, well, I didn't know the text could be displaced. That's alarming to me. By the way, the only other place that there is a displacement in the New Testament, the only other place is Matthew chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, where Matthew switches the order of the Beatitudes. All the other, when the Beatitudes are mentioned, are mentioned for the same thing and the same reason, right? And so when a scholar will look at that and say, well, wait, can we trust this source? I don't know if we can. It's different. The question is, is does it change the meaning of the text that we're looking at? And so a switching of the Beatitudes doesn't change the heart or the meaning of the text. But that's the only other one. One, so just think about this, and I'll get to the, all the other reasons why we could trust what we have. But there's only one example of displacement in the entire New Testament that you and I have right now. Okay. Remember, God is a God of what? Order. He's a God of order. Doesn't change the meaning of the text. Sometimes, if you're familiar in the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John, you'll see a passage that has brackets around it. Anybody ever noticed those before? And you know what it says in your little note? If you have a note Bible like that, it says, in the earliest manuscripts, this was not in there, but... Later manuscripts added it, so we're going to add it and put a bracket around it so that you know that there's some differences there. By the way, I just want to say, like, when you hear, and we'll get to this in a second too, but when you hear people say, how do you know that the Bible says what it says? The Bible never, ever, ever, the scholars never, ever, ever run away from what seems like an inaccuracy. They just say, well, here it is. They don't hide it. I think that's good because God is a God of order. Okay, so they don't think that the text here was displaced because a scribe would never move something around like that. That's not their job. And if they did that, they would figure it out pretty quickly and they would fire that person, right? So it's not been displaced. So then what is it? Well, most scholars think this. Now, you know how it is with scholars. They always debate and they always argue about something. But the majority of scholars think it's this. It's called interpolation. Interpolation means something added to the scripture or the original text that was not written by the original author. Okay, that seems a little more serious. Not only did it not get moved around, now someone's added something. Oh my goodness. Okay, and here's why it's probably interpolation. And it's because it was probably a note that the scribe wrote in a margin and slowly, slowly, slowly it got added into the text after copies. There's a couple other places in the New Testament that that's happened. And again, as I say, the Bible doesn't run away from any of those things. They say, well, here they are, right? Here they are. So depending on what kind of Bible you have, the original ESV, which is what we preach out of, has these verses bracketed. My copy does it because it's a newer version of it. But the original version of the ESV and other transcript translations had these verses bracketed. But if you read it in a newer translation, you're going to blow right through all that and go, well, hold on a second. Why would Paul hate on women? It doesn't make sense. And he doesn't. And here's why. Okay? Verse 34 says, women should stay silent. However, I want to turn your attention to chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. 
you put that on the board? Do you have it on the board? There it is. I'm just going to read it because I'm going to be lazy. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head. Now, this is talking in the context of the church gathering, okay? The church gathered on a Sunday morning for better, for better sake of the argument. Prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So, Paul is saying, right, in that passage that women actually who should, oh, we just got finished talking about prophecy, right? And he's saying there's a place for prophecy in the order of the service. And then in chapter 11, he says, women who do. Now, why would he say that and then write this? Because that seems incongruent. Agreed? Okay. All right. Point number one. Paul would be contradicting himself in verse 34 without reference to 11.5. Right, and that can, and as I said, it's not a displacement, and they think it's interpolation in the manuscripts. Point number two, I'm going to give you six of these. Why I think we can trust what we have. Point number two, there's no reason why this shows in some manuscripts and not others. They can't figure it out. There's no geographical reason. There's no theological reason. There's no translation reason. There's no reason. It's just there. Okay. Point number three. In the original Greek, if we're going to read that, which we're not, thank goodness, because that's boring. And I don't, by the way, I have Bible software that cheats for me. So just to let you know, Paul grammatically in the Greek concludes his argument at the end of verse 32. So verse, the last, verse 33 is a hard left turn that makes no sense in the context of how Paul writes. Because they know how Paul writes because they've read a lot of Paul. Right? Point number four, here you go. Notice when he says, as it is in all my churches, and he says... As the law also says, so that whoever wrote this, whether it's Paul or a scribe or whatever, is thinking about what the Old Testament law would say. When Paul always references the Old Testament, he always says what he references. He always says what he references. He doesn't just gloss it. By the way, when a scribe makes an error, they call it a gloss. That's where this comes from. Isn't that fun? Yeah. Paul never glosses the Old Testament. He actually says, for you could say it was written, blah, 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 blah. Point number five, and this is why reading your Bible is important, because the more you read, the more you understand, the more familiar you are with its tone and its meter and how Paul talks versus how Peter talks and how Jesus talks versus how Luke talks, right? Like, this is important because here's the thing. The whole book is what? Corinthian specific. He's not talking about any other churches. Agreed? Can we agree on that? Right. He's talking about... No other churches but Corinthians. And so Paul is being very specific about gifting in the Corinthian church, about the Corinthian church, how the Corinthian church should act, right? And then for some reason, he starts talking about general nameless women in all of his churches, which doesn't fit anywhere else in the letter. Context matters. You can't just pick a verse out of it and just say, well, you know, Paul says love never ends, so love should never end in my life. Well, that's true because Jesus is bigger than that and he gives you your salvation. But on the other hand, it matters where Paul writes that in chapter 13, right? Okay, point number six. Because here's the thing. One of the greatest arguments against Paul and Christianity, by the way, a couple of arguments. Paul invented Christianity. Jesus didn't. And then two, Paul hates women. Paul, point number six. And other places, which I could see why you would think that, right? I could see that. So what do I do with that? How do I wrestle with that? Paul, in other places in his letters, lauds, lauds, heaps praise and praise 
of the leadership of women in churches that he started. Notably, he, he, mentioned, he mentions Prisca and Phoebe and Junia by name. Now, for Paul to do that in a male-dominated first century culture is reckless. And a lot of times people would just say, wait, who are you talking about? Let me just push them to the side. That's what the culture says. And by the way, culture has not changed. Have you noticed that? Culture just, what does culture do if it doesn't agree with something? Pushes it aside and ignores it. And now we're silencing it, right? Paul raised women's status in a culture. He didn't lower them. He raises women's status and culture just like Jesus did to raise the women's stature. Jesus did that too. Woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, the sisters, right? The women. Do you know how Jesus funded his ministry, by the way? If you've noticed, it's just a little throwaway in the, in, in the gospel. I can't, I can't remember where it is, but it says, and the group of women followed him. Those were who bankrolled Jesus' ministry. It was women. It was not the men. It was women. And so I just want to take a moment and say, women, you are important. You don't need me to tell you that because you know that already. But here's the thing. You have a God who sent his son to die on your behalf because you matter and you were made female as much as anybody else was made male. And that's so important. Crossroads has great women leaders and we need more of them. I would say, like, if you're not a woman and that's in leadership or takes a role that serves, I would encourage you to do so. And by the way, men, we need to follow their example because they're on it in a way that we usually aren't because it's easier for them to take a step forward. By the way, like, I've been to a lot of churches in Central America, and those churches are run by women because of machismo. Machismo, that macho, I can't get into touch with my feelings. I can't say that I need a God because then that means I'm not self-reliant anymore. And he, you know, and so we'll let the women do the work. I've seen it in Nicaragua and I've seen it in El Salvador, multiple different places. Women, whole churches are led by women because the men are too afraid to step up. I pray it is not so with our church. I pray it's not so with the American church because you want a church that's unified. You want a church that's diverse. You know what you do? You bring male and female as God created to step forward together to lead the church as we are waiting for Jesus's people or Jesus in the kingdom to return. So almost done. So you might be thinking, okay, so I gave you some good reasons, but I thought the Bible was an errand. This seems like a very big deal to me. I don't know if I could trust this anymore. I thought the Bible was an errand. By the way, biblical inerrancy does not mean that this is perfect. Biblical inerrancy means is the idea that God perfectly communicated his message to his authors and that sometimes it's not free from inconsistencies. Okay? That's why this is a faith Thing. You want to be a prophetic, you're a prophetic person if you trust in faith that God is big enough, strong enough, powerful enough, awesome enough, big enough, awesome enough, loves us enough to perfectly communicate his ransom and his love story to you and me in this. In this. Biblical inerrancy is not the idea that it's free from inconsistencies, that God is perfect. Can you, you permit me the nerd just a, uh, another minute? Is that okay? Okay. This is fun. I love this. All right, two minutes. Thanks. I got two minutes. Homer's Iliad. Who read that in high school? Who had to read that junk in high school? It made no sense. Some of us did. Some of us didn't. 
I'm not saying if you like it, if it's your favorite story, I'm sorry. It's the most boring, hard-to-understand book I've ever read. But it's okay. Homer's Iliad was written 800 years before Jesus was born. Okay? All right. So here you go. It has 17, over 1,700 ancient copies. Right? So the Iliad that you and I could go buy right now, there's 1,700 ancient copies of which the earliest first copy that we know was written 400 years before Jesus or after it was written. Okay. The New Testament, by the way, has over 5,000 copies with its first edition written 50 years after it orally happened. And here's what I love. No one questions the veracity or the truthfulness of the Iliad, but people do with the Bible all the time. 1,700 copies versus 5,000. The longer the space, the longer it is that something might have gotten mixed up, whereas the New Testament is only 50 years after it happened. All right? And so this has led to a phenomenon called Christian destructionism. Have you heard of this? Christian destructionism? It's where people select some of God, not all, and they leave the faith and say, well, you know, so as I was saying earlier, like some people say that Paul invented Christianity. That's not the workings of the life of Jesus. That's Christian deconstructionism. Bible has errors. I can't trust it anymore. God is a God of love. Why does a loving God let bad things happen? I'm leaving the faith. And if you just want to do a cursory search on YouTube on Christian deconstructionism, you'll find all you want. You see it on TikTok a lot, too. Uh, those that are younger than the audience know exactly, I think, what I'm talking about. And I said this weeks ago, but here's the thing. Why is this important? We should never, ever, ever, ever bend the gospel around our lives to suit what we want. That's not what it is. We should bend our lives around the gospel. And the more we base Christianity and truth on individual perspective and feelings, the harder it is to be unified. You want to get after unity? Then we have to find something that we can say, well, that's the card, that's the trump card, not what I think or feel in the moment, which changes like the weather, right? It changes like the weather. And here's the other thing. It waters down the message. It waters down the message. So here's the thing. God is a God of order. That is a simple form of discipleship, and discipleship matters what you know and how you know and how we get to our destination because how we get there is just as important is that we get there. Agreed? Yeah. So God is a God of order and worship and all other things. As we looked at last week, God wants us to what? Use our mind and spirit. Remember that? I love that part. It's like when I pray in my spirit, I also pray with my mind. When I sing with my spirit, I also sing with my mind. Use your brains, but don't turn your feelings off. Use your feelings, but don't turn your brain off because nobody's hiding this stuff. It's something that we can trust because they're pressing in. We're pressing in. And so I know we came into this passage looking at worship, but I think the bigger idea of what God's wanting to say is that he is a God of order within himself and the world, and that's the bigger issue. Because here's the thing, I trust the scriptures because I trust God. Because he is better and bigger. So the band's going to come back up. And so here's the order of what I want you to walk away with. See that I did that, right? Isn't that fun? Here's the order that I want you to walk away with today. And this we can be sure of. There's no textual issues. There's no copy issues. There's no manuscript issues, right? And, and if you're interested further, by the way, and like, well, where did you get this? Where did you? 
I've got stuff I can share with you if you really want to know. Right? But here's the thing. We can't satisfy God by how we live. We can never live up to his standard, which leaves us with no hope within ourselves. But the order is, is that Jesus took our place when he went up on the tree. Let me listen to a song this week. I love when this happens. When a secular song talks about Jesus in a way that I can't just unlook at or unlisten to. And this week, he says, to be alone with me, you went up on a tree. Isn't that true? Because before God, we were alone in death. And then Jesus joined us in that death by going up on a tree. And I'm thankful for that. So as the band plays, I want you to just consider, like, where are you with God? Where are you with his order? And what would he have you do next? Will you stand and pray with me, please? God, I'm thankful um, that you are bigger, you're better, you're larger. Like my box for you can't contain you. Because if my box could contain you, then you wouldn't be my God. I would be your God. And, and I pray, Lord, just as we sing and as we respond, and not just sing and respond because that's what we're asked, but really reflect, really press in. Let us see the boxes that we have you in. Let me see the boxes that I have you in because I'm saying that I'm your God in those boxes. And that's absolutely not true. Because in faith, I trust that Jesus, you died and you resurrected. And so, God, whether we come across hard texts or hard seasons, God, I know that you will use those seasons and those texts and those passages to show us that you're better, that you're bigger, and that in spite of what we might think or react to in the moment, that you have a path for each of us. And we're walking that right now. So when I think about worship, when I think about order, when I think about spiritual gifts as we turn the page towards chapter 15, God, I thank you that we're all uniquely made, we're divinely appointed, and that you want us all where you have us right now for a reason that is for your glory. So can we just sing that? Can my heart just express that as we sing? I know people are going through hard things. I pray, God, that they would receive hope and encouragement, that you are a God of love, that you are a God that has gone above and beyond that you went up on a tree to be with them. God, thank you for that. Thank you that you went up on a tree to be with me because I deserve to be on that tree, not you. And so as we sing, look, God, let us think that. Let us confess that. And let us give you all the things, our hopes, our fears, our wants, our desires. But also, God, let us say that you are those things as well and that we have you because of Jesus. So it's in your name. Amen.